Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Bridget. And this is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show diving into all things related to policy analysis in international affairs. Today on the show, we begin with a quick roundup of some interesting developments in foreign policy. Uh, the recent intelligence leaks involving the Trump administration and U.S. law enforcement, well, starting it all off, was President Trump's recent disclosure of top-secret Israeli intelligence to the Russian ambassador during a meeting in the Oval Office. So once news of the leak reached the media, the embattled Trump administration launched into damage control, downplaying the significance of the incident and framing it as a humanitarian gesture meant to warn Russia of an impending Islamic State terror plot. So the leak has had repercussions, with Israeli Defense Chief Avgador Lieberman stating that Israel has since tweaked its intelligence-sharing protocols with the U.S. And soon after, uh, following the tragic Manchester Arena bomb attack, sensitive details of the investigation passed on by UK investigators was allegedly leaked by US law enforcement to American media. So the publication of the bomber's name, in addition to pictures of bomb fragments, caused uproar among UK officials with a Whitehall official describing the incident as having caused disbelief and astonishment across the British government. So not a good day for the US. UK law enforcement shares investigation information with the National Counterterrorism Department which in turn shares it across the UK government and from there with Five Eyes intelligence partners. So that means the US, Australia, Canada, and New Zealand. UK police have since stopped sharing information with the US following the media leak. So intelligence leaks of this nature have the potential to severely undermine established intelligence networks, which at their core operate on trust. Uh, while these incidents will not likely cause significant change to the U.S.'s intelligence partnerships, they erode the trust between officials that is crucial to the effective operation of these networks. And following that, we go to our update on the NATO summit held in Tbilisi, Georgia. The NATO Secretary General Jan Stoltenberg gave a keynote speech to allies in the Parliamentary Assembly, outlining the progress NATO has made and the expansions NATO has lined up for the near future. One such development in Europe is the establishment of a new terrorism intelligence cell at its headquarters in Brussels, which will include getting better at sharing intelligence on foreign fighters and appoint a special coordinator to oversee the counterterrorism efforts. You'll recall that U.S. President Donald Trump was heavily critical of NATO members for not paying their fair share, which explicitly is 2% of GDP towards collective defense. For context, Canada pays approximately 1% of its GDP in this defense agreement, and a percentage of GDP is quite a lot of money. So it's a very tall order to fix. Critics, in turn, were churning that President Trump's speech made no reference to the NATO pledge for members to defend each other in an instance of attack, which is the main point of the NATO alliance and encapsulated in Article 5 of the treaty. Now, in the midst of finger-wagging among leaderships, NATO operations are growing. NATO will formally join the U.S.-led coalition against ISIL. And in addition, a reminder that Montenegro will soon become the 29th member state of the alliance. In a keynote address for the NATO Parliamentary Assembly, the collective defense arrangement stressed that NATO's support of Georgia in boosting its defense capabilities and preparing it for NATO accession. This growing defensive eastward means that most countries fearful of Russian aggression 
which Latvia has become a vital training center, and the accession amongst eastward states has been growing. And to round us off, our third story, the China Silk Road project. So shifting to the east, in early 2017, China announced the One Belt, One Road initiative, also known as the New Silk Road project. So the goal of this project is to develop a system of roads running through Central Asia, Iran, Turkey, Eastern Europe, and Southeast Asia, South Asia, and Africa. So uh, quite the initiative. China is expected to make a a $1.3 billion investment to bring this project to life, signaling a growing participation of China in the global economy. So as the Trump-led America seeks greater protectionist measures, initiatives like the Silk Road Project can be interpreted as steps being taken by China to position itself as a regional hegemon. Interesting to note that with growing tensions in the Korean Peninsula, China could be considering to further develop its economic and political relations outside of East Asia with goals to also revive its slowing economy. So, of course, it's also necessary for China to champion liberal trading policies for its own survival. But there is certainly a window of opportunity that Xi Jinping is taking advantage of and in turn creating space for stronger Chinese influence amidst U.S. allies like South Korea and Japan. As the One Belt, One Road initiative materializes, the regional and global foreign policy implications could be quite significant. And this, if you haven't guessed, leads us to our main topic tonight, which is all about security, accepted security in Asia, as we go into the North Korean nuclear program and its effect on Asia-Pacific regional security. North Korea has had long been considered a pariah among states due to its highly repressive government and its aggressive rhetoric and action towards other states, particularly neighboring South Korea. Despite being a signatory to the Treaty on Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, it has repeatedly conducted nuclear testing, finally leading it to withdraw from the treaty in 2002. Since then, North Korea has conducted several missile tests, indicating that it is attempting to develop nuclear missiles that can hit other states. And at present, tensions between North Korea and a number of states, notably the US, Japan, and South Korea, are high, given its provocation through rhetoric and missile tests. Statements by U.S. President Donald Trump that he is willing to use military force against the DPRK to prevent it from threatening the U.S. with nuclear weapons have additionally stoked fears of a second Korean War, which would have potential to escalate to nuclear conflict. So South Korea's recent presidential election also complicates the situation, as newly elected President Moon Jae-in has long favored a return to the Sunshine Policy, which emphasizes dialogue with the North over military posturing. Recently, however, President Moon has expressed concern regarding the likelihood of both Koreas going to war in the near future, making his uh, preferred policy unclear. Heavily relying on China for economic and political support, even that relationship has weakened uh, recently, as a consequence of its nuclear belligerence, though the People's Republic of China continues to support the uh, Kim Jong-un regime with trade. So where China ultimately stands on this issue will significantly alter the power dynamics and real threats to the security of the region. To help us understand the foreign policy implications of North Korea's recent nuclear testing and aggressive rhetoric is Benoit Hardy-Chartron, Senior Research Associate at the Center for International Governance, Innovation, and the Global Security and Politics Program. He provides research for CG's work on Asia-Pacific security. His research interests and expertise include East Asian geopolitical and security issues, North Korean politics and society, nuclear politics, and human rights. We reach him today in Waterloo. Welcome to the show, Benoit. Thank you very much for having me. 
So getting started with our first question, the time and resources dedicated to the development of nuclear weapons by the North Korean government suggests that its weapons program is more than just an irrational decision made by its leaders. So what motivation does the North Korean government have to pursue a nuclear weapons program in the first place? And what does the country gain from possessing such weapons, given the international community's response to these efforts? Sure. Well, let me just first talk a little bit about uh, the motivation. Um, the motivation is twofold. And for to understand really uh, their motivations, I think we have to look back a little bit at uh, North Korea's history. Uh, the, interest, the interest in North Korea's uh, nuclear technology dates back to the 1950s, actually right after the uh, Korean War, which lasted from 1950 to 1953. And during the Korean War, uh, North Korea was, uh, was thoroughly bombarded by the Americans, and it, it was left uh, reeling for several, several years after the Korean War. And I think probably at that point, the leader of North Korea, Kim Il-sung, who is uh, the grandfather of the current leader, Kim Jong-un, uh, it really uh, it was a moment in history that really made him realize the importance of deterrence uh, for when it comes to uh, the threat that it perceived, and not only the threat from, from South Korea, but as well, uh, mostly from, uh, from the United States. So so early on, um, the, what we have to understand is that North Korea, the regime, uh, was installed by the Soviet Union. So Kim Il-sung was basically handpicked by, by the Soviets. And early on, uh, the North Korean regime, North Korean political system, was modeled uh, over the Soviet Union. And uh, therefore, there was a lot of cooperation early on. And early on, uh, North Korea sent nuclear scientists and uh, technicians to the USSR for training uh, to go to various institutes there and come back to North Korea and apply these new the, the, this knowledge to, uh, to, to this burgeoning um, program in North Korea. So um, it really started in the 1960s, actually. So originally in the 1950s, North Korea sent some, uh, some, some scientists, like I said. But in the 1960s, North Korea received a first research reactor from the Soviet Union. So that allowed them to produce some isotopes and allowed them to uh, really start working on, on uh, what would be, what would eventually become their nuclear uh, weapons program. Uh, the weapons program itself started in the 1980s. Uh, that's when they really got to work on developing nuclear uh, uh, devices and nuclear arms that they would eventually be able to uh, to send abroad. So early on, just to get back to the original question about motivation, when we look at uh, where it all started during the Cold War, right after the uh, right after the Korean War, uh, the the question of of uh, security, the question of deterrence, was probably first and foremost in the minds of Kim Il Sung and uh, all leaders of, of North Korea. So that was uh, the most important motivation, I would say. But the other important thing that we have to keep in mind is the constant rivalry with South Korea. And because of this uh, rivalry, which happens not only in the security sphere, but also in the economic sphere uh, and various other spheres as well, um, both countries were always trying to, um, trying to surpass the other, exceed the other in, uh, in accomplishments, whether it was on the technical side, sports side, economy. Um, and that really motivated in large part as well the North Koreans to develop uh, the, their nuclear capability and, and surpass the South. One thing that is quite surprising and that we have to keep in mind is that for the first two decades, North and South Korea were actually 
basically on par when it came to development and uh, the state of their economy. It's hard to imagine, obviously, today, because South Korea is a very, very developed country, 12th or 13th largest economy in the world, whereas uh, North Korea is very, uh, you know, a poor country, uh, all things uh, all things considered. Um, so, but back then, when they were pretty equal, as you can imagine, it was important for uh, North Korea to uh, have all these accomplishments, which would help when it came to national prestige, what would help as well to uh, garner support for the uh, for the North Korean regime, for Kim Il-sung's position at the apex of power. So these two, uh, both security as well as national prestige, I would say, are the two main motivations for the uh, North Korean nuclear weapons program. Now, you asked me as well uh, what it gained from possessing uh, these weapons, uh, these weapons given uh, all the international backlash, the sanctions that it has been subjected to. Uh, what it gains primarily, uh, North Korea, it has been able to gain through these weapons, first of all, a sense of increased security, as well as um, with these weapons, it has really been able to use them well, especially in the 1990s and 2000s, to, as a sort of bargaining chip, a tool to obtain concessions from, uh, from the international community through negotiations. Um, so because of this, because of what it was able to obtain with these nuclear weapons, not only the sense of security, but these concessions, as well as, um, as, well as the fact that it really helped um, for it really helped the regime to show its people that it was serious about about security, that it was standing up to the Amer- to the Americans. Uh, so for all these reasons, it it felt or it calculated that the backlash or the negatives, uh, the disadvantages of holding these um, uh, these weapons far outweighed uh, the benefits that it derived from these weapons. Would you say that the regime has perhaps been? informed in its decisions by recent events, and here I'm thinking of Libya and Iraq, the regime change following internal instability and the lack of both those regimes of an effective deterrent to prevent regime change. No doubt. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Iraq and Libya. I wouldn't say that these two, uh, the instances of these two countries changed or completely overturned or motivated or yeah, changed the thinking of North Korea, but it motivated them even further to pursue, uh, to pursue the route of uh, nuclear weapons. And one thing that is uh, very interesting is especially the cases of, of Libya has been used and has been, um, has been put in the news and the national propaganda um, ad nauseum to show that the regime needed these nuclear weapons to ensure that they would not suffer the same fate as as, as the Libyans, because uh, Libya had a uh, a budding nuclear weapons program and never they never came to fruition, but they were on that route and they ended up um, getting rid of these. Uh, of these weapons in return for greater engagement from the West. Now we all know what happened to uh, to Qaddafi um, in a few years ago, and as I mentioned, so repeatedly since then we have seen uh, North Korea not only in the news where they talked about Libya. They said, "Look, look what look what happens to these countries uh, who um, get rid or denuclearize or get rid of their of, the, of their deterrence." So they have showed that through uh, their um, uh, their papers, like I said, newspapers, but as well. 
through interviews of high placed officials in the regime when they when they've been abroad for example at United Nations in other venues they have talked about uh, the example of Libya and to a lesser extent Iraq as well and therefore it is it is very clear that uh, these two events have only motivated the North Koreans further in uh, in their in their willingness to do all that they can to ensure uh, the development of their nuclear weapon and ensure ensure their survival because the, the the lesson for them is very clear they have nuclear weapons they will survive they get rid of them as the West wants and they will suffer the fate of Qaddafi and Saddam Hussein. Now I'm curious so you mentioned Russia's historical ties with North Korea and how entrenched they are but from what we hear in the news we hear far more about South Korea and especially China's involvement with North Korea and trying to create a sense of regional stability and security. What, if at all, does Russia still have involvement with in the region? So when it comes to the nuclear issue, uh, Russia is still a player, albeit certainly not even close to how important it was during the Cold War, and especially after, at the end of the Cold War, when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, basically uh, it stopped subsidizing and giving uh, given aid to the North Korea, and North Korea suffered a major blow because of that. Um, so I would say for the first decade after the collapse in 1991, uh, Russia was a very, very minor player on the Korean Peninsula and in, uh, in, in the region, generally speaking. In the last few years, however, it has um, not, I wouldn't say necessarily burst back onto the scene because it was always there, but it has played a slightly more important role. Well, first of all, Russia is, uh, or was rather, involved in the six-party talks that was meant to lead to the denuclearization of North Korea. And also recently, uh, I would say in the past four or five years, or even more recently since uh, the sanctions have been imposed on Russia because of its invasion of, uh, of, of eastern Ukraine, uh, Russia has sort of looked to the east, has done its own pivot to, to the east, so not only through increased ties with uh, China, but as well through North Korea. Now, the last two, three years, there, has been, uh, there have been quite a few deals that have been struck between uh, Russia and uh, and North Korea, including, among others, forgiving uh, the very may or 90% of the debt that uh, North Korea held uh, towards uh, towards the Soviet Union from the from the, the Cold War. Um, and so today, uh, Russia is one of the players uh, with, I would say, China that is constantly uh, trying to calm down all parties. Try always calling parties to go back to the negotiation table. And so basically on in one corner, I think we see Russia, we see China and North Korea having relatively uh, similar positions, whereas on the other side, we have Japan, South Korea, and the United States. So this is how it's playing out right now. Uh, Russia definitely is, uh, is not nearly as important in this whole uh, nuclear crisis as China is, but still the mere fact that it possesses a I think it's 17 miles border with North Korea uh, makes it a, a partner that we simply cannot overlook in trying to trying to deal with uh, the North Korean regime. And jumping from that, it's extremely hard to talk about North Korea without talking about the financial and economic implications. And North Korea has been subjected to numerous economic sanctions by other states as a way of pressuring its government into abandoning nuclear ambitions. So far, though, these efforts appeared to have failed as North Korea has continued to conduct test explosions and test launches. 
Why haven't sanctions succeeded? Well, uh, the sanctions have not succeeded for one main reason, and that is lack of of enforcement or lukewarm enforcement from uh, some of the parties. And in this case, I'm referring specifically to to China. There have been, as you mentioned, uh, numerous sets of international sanctions that were voted by the uh, United Nations Security Council, most recently uh, sanctions uh, Resolution 2321 after the last nuclear test in September, uh, which imposed very comprehensive restrictions on North Korea, including on coal exports. Uh, It also banned uh, exports of several minerals, which are very important sources of income for the regime. It has uh, also prohibited all weapons sales from North Korea, which, uh, again, are also an important source of revenue for the regime. So the problem themselves, uh, while the sanctions could be reinforced, and they're certainly not as strong as uh, what we have seen on Iran, for example, the main problem is really the lack of enforcement. So I mentioned earlier China. Uh, China's approach to the sanctions uh, is quite interesting. While it has voted for these sanctions uh, in in all recent uh, sets of uh, sanctions, all recent resolutions, it has always been um, pushing back at the Security Council uh, when it came to the severity of these sanctions. And that's one of the reasons why after a lot of these uh, North Korean provocations, be they uh, nuclear tests or missiles, when the council was trying to come up with these uh, with these resolutions, often uh, there was uh, diplomatic wrangling for a month or two, and simply because the United States and the uh, Chinese were not able to agree on exactly to what extent uh, restrict or restrain uh, North Korean activities. Um, however, at the end, they have always signed on to the sanctions, so they have played their part when it came to that, but the real problem is the, the actual enforcement of these sanctions. Because the, very, because the vast majority of North Korean trade goes through China, we're talking here about up to 90% of North Korean trade going through China, the only or the main player uh, in when it, can, when it comes to trade, when it comes to restricting these activities is China. If China does not do its part, North Korea will be able to continue its uh, illicit activities um, on that often go through uh, Chinese territory. Um, and that's why in the last few months, especially since Trump has been elected on November 8th and since his inauguration of, on um, January 20th, we've, we've heard him um, increasingly talk about the need for China to play its part. Um, Obama was also quite strong on this, uh, but we hear this a lot more from uh, from Trump. And recently there have been signs, and that's, I think, a relatively interesting development. There have been signs that the Chinese were somewhat willing to apply a little more pressure on North Korea. For example, we've heard this past, um, I think it was in February, that they announced that they would stop um, all coal imports from North Korea. And coal is the number one mineral that North Korea exports. So that was an important blow to North Korea. However, China could do a lot more when it comes to enforcing these. Um, We're talking here about, for example, Chinese companies that abet a North Korean nuclear program uh, that provide some components to North Korea for their nuclear programs or missiles. And uh, China is simply not acting strongly 
strongly enough on this. And this is where uh, the United States is, is hoping to see uh, some change from the Chinese. So not only in terms of enforcement of sanctions, uh, which is one important thing, but also even the, the, the breadth of the sanctions, because they are extensive. But we often hear in the media about North Korea being extensively or the most, we've often hear that as well, that it is the most um, sanctioned country in the world, which is simply not the case. I hinted at this earlier, but the, uh, Iran was much more, uh, the sanctions against Iran were much more broad, much more comprehensive, and much more restrictive. Um, and therefore, the international community could go even further here when it comes to uh, sanctions on North Korea. But mostly, to go back to your question, the reason why they haven't worked principally is that they have not been uh, enforced with uh, sufficient rigor. And with that, we're going to jump into our first break. Be sure to stick here for more Policy Talks. You're listening to Policy Talks Podcast, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, come visit us at www.policytalkspodcast.com. Jumping back to my last question and the kind of dual nature that China has between what it says in the UN and versus what it acts on in trade and other regional ways. And what in the U.S. history and memory. Has the U.S. done to try and convince China to fall in line with what the U.S. wants it to do? And what do you think is a switch that needs to be made to do that successfully in the future? Well, I think there, unfortunately, really isn't uh, there isn't much that the U.S. can do to convince China to act uh, differently in this case. And the, the, the problem here is, is relatively simple in, in that Chinese and American interests are very different, are very divergent when it comes to the stability or to what they are looking for in the region. So um, the main reason why China has not enforced these sanctions uh, with the rigor that the international community was hoping for is that China, above all, above denuclearization, is concerned uh, with stability in the region. And we have seen that not only with North Korea, but we've seen that along its borders, um, in, in Western borders as well. We've seen that as well domestically with the situation in Tibet and Xinjiang. Uh, we've seen it uh, in the South China Sea. What China wants is really full uh, control, or rather to avoid the instability at its border. And this is one of the reasons why, uh, the main reason actually, why it has refused or really hesitated to apply more pressure on North Korea. Because according to this uh, ch Chinese thinking and the strategy, they, they really fear that if they were to apply more pressure to China, it would likely create uh, instability inside the North Korean regime, which could uh, provoke the collapse of the regime. And if that were to happen, this is really what the Chinese fear is that there would be millions of refugees that would likely pour across the border into China, into the three border provinces uh, in the northeast of China. And that would create a lot of instability, a lot of chaos inside of, of, of Chinese territory. And the reason why these uh, refugees would would come across the border with China more than the border with South Korea is, is the mere fact that the border with South Korea is a lot more heavily guarded uh, than the one with uh, than the one with North Korea uh, between North Korea and China, and uh, therefore this is really this is really what has um, what has 
motivated Chinese strategy for decades there. And I would say in the last few years, because of the intensified rivalry between the United States and China, this idea that they cannot allow the, uh, the Korean Peninsula to fall under uh, the purview or the control of South Korea and therefore having a uh, United States troop at its border has become a, a, a even more salient, has become a more important point for Chinese strategic uh, thinking. And this is why, no matter what I think Trump tries to do, do what tries to say to Xi, to the pre President Xi Jinping, I don't think uh, it'll be possible to completely or sufficiently change uh, Chinese thinking for the reasons that I just mentioned. These are way too important, um, and these issues pertain to, um, to Chinese national uh, security, at least in the thinking of, of the leaders in Beijing. Um, we have seen since Trump has been in power in January um, more how would I say that, a, a willingness on the part of the U.S. that we haven't seen before to sort of strike some deals with, uh, with the Chinese. So we've heard Trump, for example, talk about doing uh, this or giving better deals to the Chinese if they were to provide more help on North Korea. Um, for example, early on, uh, Trump kept talking about naming China as a currency man uh, manipulator, and he's decided recently not to do that, apparently because he has judged that the Chinese were uh, more willing to, uh, to be cooperative on, on North Korea. This is an approach that is very different and I think very risky because once you start uh, making deals like that, uh, this is something I believe the Chinese could take uh, advantage of. Um, a very new and unorthodox approach, I would say, for uh, American uh, approach to, to the region. Um, so... That's why I think in the near future, or even in the midterm future, it's hard to imagine the situation changing because simply uh, the main players in, uh, in this whole crisis, and I'm not talking only about China and the United States, but even South Korea and Japan all have uh, interests that, uh, interest that in many cases um, are completely opposed to, to one another. And that makes, that makes it very hard to coordinate uh, efficient policies, efficient policies towards Pyongyang and to bring it back to a more uh, amenable um, approach. So, for example, bring them back to the negotiation table. So um, that's why overall I'm not very uh, optimistic for the future. So I think moving on to our last question, uh, given the apparent failure of economic sanctions, um, there have been calls for renewed negotiations with North Korea to, pers to persuade its government to disarm itself, as well as proposals to launch a preemptive military strike against the regime to prevent the potential use of nuclear weapons against neighboring states and the U.S. So could these approaches succeed where sanctions have failed? Uh, what are the potential downsides associated with uh, either of these policies? Okay, so I'll first talk about briefly the uh, preemptive strikes, because this, this is something we've heard uh, more about uh, from Washington since uh, January 20th. And it's something that early on really uh, worried me, because there was a willingness to entertain this idea uh, to a degree that we had not seen under Obama. And uh, preemptive strikes on North Korea, although they have always been a preferred, or I wouldn't say preferred option, but they have always been um, um, 
entertained to a greater degree from uh, the hawks in Washington would be an absolutely terrible idea because um, the idea there is to dismantle or to hit North Korea's uh, missile sites and nuclear sites in order to completely dismantle uh, dismantle them and and prevent North Korea to uh, hit back against South Korea or uh, or Japan, which is also a target for uh, North Korea. Uh, if that were to happen, if there were to be uh, uh, preemptive strikes um, before the Americans were able to uh, dismantle or hit properly all uh, or the sites in North Korea. Um, it would be uh, I'm say it. I'm talking about Pyongyang here. Pyongyang would have plenty of time there to retaliate against uh, targets in South Korea, against targets in Japan as well, and would create unimaginable damage to uh, to American interest in the region. So the idea that the Americans, even with their overwhelming military capabilities, would be able to uh, bring North Korea to its knees without uh, without suffering damage is completely preposterous. It is it is it would be it would almost. Um, almost certainly lead to a large-scale, albeit short, but large-scale uh, conflict on the peninsula. So this is why, thankfully, I would say, uh, in the last month or two, the, the talks of preemptive strikes have been somewhat more muted uh, in Washington. So this is the main downside that is associated with, with strikes. Now, you also asked me about, uh, about sanctions, um, about dialogue, rather. So dialogue is likely to be, um, to be what we see in the near future, especially considering the new government in South Korea. On May 9th, uh, Moon Jae-in was elected president in South Korea. And Moon Jae-in is, is a leftist progressive president who has long called for uh, closer ties with North Korea and, and increased dialogue with the North. So we're likely to see that. And that approach, it has to be said, has been uh, employed in the past, especially during uh, between 1998 and 2007. We had in in South Korea, what we what we call uh, the Sunshine Policy, under which the South Koreans basically reached out to North Korea and gave them uh, increased dialogue and gave them almost uh, unconditional aid, uh, totaling billions of dollars during, during those years. However, what we have seen is that even reaching out to North Korea has not in the past substantially changed its uh, its strategic thinking and its uh, foreign policy behavior. All it can do is and history has shown that all this can do is somewhat temporarily uh, calm down tensions, uh, decrease tensions, but without substantially changing uh, the real uh, objective and goals of the North Korean regime. And the other problem, too, is because of the um, the, the thinking of, of the North Korean leaders and the fact that they feel they're, that they're, they're being held hostage and that the world is very hostile towards this position, uh, it, is, it has been inclined in the past to often uh, not keep its words when it came to international agreements. Now, it has to be said that the United States as well, especially under George W. Bush, as well did not uh, hold its part, its uh, end of the deal. But North Korea especially um, has often reneged on, uh, on agreements that it had had reached with uh, with its neighbors, and um, therefore I think I mean it's not like it's it's not like it's 
something that we should not be trying the, the dialogue. And I think, again, it's, it's likely that this is um, uh, an approach that is that we're going to see in the next few years. But because uh, of the past and because of the nature of the North Korean regime, I do not expect dialogue to do much more uh, than temporarily decrease tension without a real wholesale change of, of attitude or uh, foreign policy behavior from North Korea. Well, I think that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much for your perspective. I think you gave us a really good grasp of the issue and the surrounding nuance. It was a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks. And thank you for listening to Policy Talks. Remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at PolicyTalksPod for updates and related content. If you have any feedback, comments, suggestions, concerns, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email or reach us on Facebook or Twitter. So a quick thanks to our research team who put this episode together. We have Mark Hyken, Samrin Roy, Josiah Witherspoon, our technician Megan Boisjoli, and our wonderful producer Joe Venkatesh. Until next time, I'm Matt. And I'm Bridget. And this is Policy Talks. Policy Talks.